It's not that easy being green. Having to spend each day the color of the leaves. When I think it could be nicer being red or yellow or gold or something much more colorful like that. It's not that easy being green. It seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. And people tend to pass you over because you're not standing out like flashy sparkles in the water or stars in the sky. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 28th day of June, 2009. I'd like to welcome all of the new listeners to the Corbett Report podcast, and of course welcome back all the old listeners, and encourage everyone to check out the websites CorbettReport.com and AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as interviews, articles, and videos that the Corbett Report has created in the past. I'd also like to let my listeners know that I'll be appearing on the Badlands Radio Show on WPRT Radio and KVMP 99.9 FM in Central Texas this Friday, July 3rd, and the show airs from 8 to 11 p.m. Central Standard Time. We'll be discussing Bilderberg and the mainstream media, so by all means, tune in if that radio show is broadcast in your local area, and if it isn't, of course, you can always listen live on the internet at wprtradio.com. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from the Washington Post, June 27, 2009. White House weighs order on detention. Officials, move would reassert power to hold terror suspects indefinitely. Obama administration officials, fearing a battle with Congress that could stall plans to close the U.S. prison at Guantanamo Bay, are crafting language for an executive order that would reassert presidential authority to incarcerate terrorism suspects indefinitely, according to three senior government officials with knowledge of White House deliberations. Such an order would embrace claims by former President George W. Bush that certain people can be detained without trial for long periods under the laws of war. Obama advisors are concerned that an order which would bypass Congress could place the president on weaker footing before the courts and anger key supporters, the official said. Today's second real news story comes from PressTV.ir. Saudi royals funded 9-11, lawyers. Lawyers representing the families of the 9-11 victims expose evidence allegedly proving the Saudi royal family's financial support for al-Qaeda. The lawyers provided the New York Times with excerpts of the material they had amassed by putting together the pieces from leaking American intelligence documents, among other things, the Daily reported on Tuesday. The evidence, originally presented in hundreds of thousands of pages, 
recount how the Saudi royalty would use middlemen and financial supply routes to bankroll militants based in Afghanistan and Bosnia. Prince Turki al-Faisal is alleged in the evidence to have delivered up to a 1 billion rial, 267 million US dollar, check to a top Taliban leader through an envoy in 1998. Prince Salman bin Abdulaziz and other royals were also accused in a German intelligence report of using a Saudi charity as a stopover for the funds. The report named Pakistan as yet another destination for the assistance. The family, which had strong ties with the Bush administration, is also suspected of having reinforced the militancy otherwise and enlisted militant agents using intermediaries, including the Saudi High Commission for Aid to Bosnia. Today's third real news story comes from the Washington Post, June 20th, 2009. Obama administration looks to colleges for future spies. To the list of collegiate types, nerds, jocks, Greeks, add one more, spies in training. The government is hoping they'll be hard to spot. The Obama administration has proposed the creation of an intelligence officer training program in colleges and universities that would function much like the Reserve Officers Training Corps run by the military services. The idea is to create a stream of first and second generation Americans who already have critical language and cultural knowledge and prepare them for careers in the intelligence agencies, according to a description sent to Congress by Director of National Intelligence Dennis C. Blair. In recent years, the CIA and other intelligence agencies have struggled to find qualified recruits who can work the streets of the Middle East and South Asia to penetrate terrorist groups and criminal enterprises. The proposed program is an effort to cultivate and educate a new generation of career intelligence officers from ethnically and culturally diverse backgrounds. Under the proposal, part of the administration's 2010 Intelligence Authorization Bill, colleges and universities would apply for grants that would be used to expand or introduce courses of study to meet the emerging needs of the intelligence community. Those courses would include certain foreign languages, analysis, and specific scientific and technical fields. Today's fourth real news story comes from the Raw Story, June 27, 2009. U.S. gives up on eradicating Afghanistan's opium. Since the United States invaded Afghanistan, the country's number one cash crop, opium, has repeatedly broken production records. By some estimates, the occupied territory now supplies some 90% of the world's poppies. So far, eradication efforts have merely fueled the Taliban's coffers and driven civilian farmers further outside of U.S. influence. Because of this, the United States has formed a new strategy in the fight against the crop. They are giving up. The Western policies against the opium crop, the poppy crop, have been a failure, said Richard Holbrook, America's envoy to Afghanistan and Pakistan, speaking to a G8 conference on Afghanistan. They did not result in any damage to the Taliban, but they put farmers out of work. We are not going to support crop eradication. We're going to phase it out, he told Reuters. Today's fifth real news story comes from vdare.com, June 23, 2009. Ignorance is strength. 
The American media's one-sided and propagandistic coverage of the Iranian election has made an American hero out of the defeated candidate, Mousavi. This leaves one wondering if anyone, anywhere in the U.S. media or U.S. government, knows that Mir Hussein Mousavi, who served as Prime Minister of the Islamic Republic of Iran from 1981 to 1989, the decade following the overthrow of the American puppet government by Khomeini, has been fingered as the Butcher of Beirut, responsible for the bloody attacks on the U.S. Embassy and Marine Corps barracks in Beirut during the Reagan administration that blew to pieces 241 U.S. Marines, sailors, and Army troops. According to Jeff Stein, writing in the June 22, 2009 CQ Politics, Mousavi personally selected his point man for the Beirut terror campaign, Ali Akbar Montechemipur, who presided over the terror cell responsible for the attacks. The National Security Agency had a tap on the Iranian ambassador to Lebanon, according to Admiral James Lyons, who was deputy chief of naval operations at the time. Admiral Lyons told Jeff Stein that the Iranian ambassador received instructions from the foreign minister to have various groups target U.S. personnel in Lebanon, but in particular to carry out a spectacular action against the Marines. Stein reports that Lyons also fingered Mousavi for the 1988 truck bombing of the U.S. Navy's fleet center in Naples, Italy. Bob Baer, a CIA Middle East field officer at the time, says that Mousavi dealt directly with Imad Mugnia, the person responsible for both attacks. All of these facts have gone into the memory hole. The U.S. media and government have turned Mousavi, the bloody butcher of U.S. servicemen, into the would-be liberator of Iran from theocracy. Today's final real news story comes from Bloomberg.com, June 22, 2009. Insiders exit shares at the fastest pace in two years. Executives at U.S. companies are taking advantage of the biggest stock market rally in 71 years to sell their shares at the fastest pace since credit markets started to seize up two years ago. Insiders of Standard & Poor's 500 index companies were net sellers for 14 straight weeks as the gauge rose 36%, data compiled by Insiderscore.com shows. Amgen Inc. Chairman and Chief Executive Officer Kevin Scherer and five other officials sold $8.2 million of stock. Christopher Donahue, the CEO of Federated Investors Inc., and his brother, Chief Financial Officer Thomas Donahue, offered the most in three years. Sales by CEOs, directors, and senior officers have accelerated to the highest level since June 2007, two months before credit markets froze, as the S&P 500 rebounded from its 12-year low in March. The increase is making investors more skittish, because executives presumably have the best information about their company's prospects. If insiders are selling into the rally, that shows they don't expect their business to be able to support current stock price levels. Welcome to episode 92 of the Corbett Report. Environmentalism is corporate controlled. Of course, long-term listeners of the Corbett Report will be well aware by now that the man-made global warming scam is just that, a scam. 
The science itself points to the fact that climate is not driven by greenhouse gases. Climate is driven by the single primary source for energy in this solar system, the sun. And in previous episodes, like episode 6 and episode 65 and episode 87, and in previous interviews that we've conducted, like our interviews with Dr. Tim Ball, we've gone through the science of how the sun actually is the driver of the Earth's climate. We've also, of course, gone into the political agenda that is behind this move towards labeling carbon dioxide a deadly poison, and the driving ideology for that agenda, which of course is eugenics and population reduction. But just when you thought that the mass media hysteria surrounding the man-made global warming scam could not reach any more ridiculous levels, along comes this idea. On nearly 100 days each year, the temperature climbs above 90 degrees, which in muggy Houston feels even hotter. Air conditioning provides relief, but at a cost. Houstonian soaring electricity use has nudged the city ahead of Los Angeles in the race to become the country's number one producer of greenhouse gases. A dubious distinction. And the problem is only getting worse. Forced to spend a fortune in a losing battle against nature, and with energy costs spiking unpredictably, Houston finds itself square in the path of an environmental juggernaut, which threatens to make the city unlivable. That's why some think that the only way to save Houston is to move it indoors. The Houston Dome surface area will stretch over 21 million square feet, making it the biggest structure with the largest roof in the world. The dome's broadest panels will be 15 feet across, with over 147,000 of them covering the city of Houston. Imagine the nightmare of trying to fill those panels with traditional building materials. A dome of this size could not be done with conventional materials. If we have to do it using glass or plexiglass or any other of that type, it'll be so heavy that we simply could not build it. The Houston Dome's panels require something much lighter. Here, in the small German city of Bremen, this factory, the main headquarters of the Vector Foil Tech Company, is at the epicenter of a revolution in material science. The company manufactures ethylene tetrafluoroethylene, or ETFE. It's an incredibly strong, yet lightweight and transparent polymer that's changing the face of modern architecture. Yes, straight out of the fevered imagination of a cheesy 1950s sci-fi B-movie flick comes the idea of placing a giant geodesic dome around Houston to prevent the ravages of man-made global warming from destroying that city. Never mind, of course, that this ridiculous idea was actually the plot for the Simpsons movie with the giant geodesic dome being placed around Springfield to trap the inhabitants inside and eventually for the government to come along and kill all of them. But uh, that predictive programming aside, such a ridiculous idea is, of course, laughable 
or at least it would be laughable if we were living in any other universe. Living in the universe that we are, however, it is not laughable at all, because such ridiculous ideas are being taken seriously. Now, while that particular idea is still very theoretical and maybe some years off, some other ideas are gaining ground politically and, in fact, are fast becoming reality. Indeed, just this week, the House Democrats passed a chilling new tyrannical piece of legislation which will change the face of the American economy forever based on global warming hysteria and pseudoscience. The Obamasaya explains. Yesterday, the House of Representatives passed a historic piece of legislation that will open the door to a clean energy economy and a better future for America. For more than three decades, we've talked about our dependence on foreign oil. And for more than three decades, we have seen that dependence grow. We've seen our reliance on fossil fuels jeopardize our national security. We've seen it pollute the air we breathe and endanger our planet. And most of all, we've seen other countries realize a critical truth. The nation that leads in the creation of a clean energy economy will be the nation that leads the 21st century global economy. Now's the time for the United States of America to realize this too. Now's the time for us to lead. The energy bill that passed the House will finally create a set of incentives that will spark a clean energy transformation in our economy. It will spur the development of low-carbon sources of energy, everything from wind, solar, and geothermal power to safer nuclear energy and cleaner coal. It will spur new energy savings, like the efficient windows and other materials that reduce heating costs in the winter and cooling costs in the summer. And most importantly, it will make possible the creation of millions of new jobs. Make no mistake, this is a jobs bill. We're already seeing why this is true in the clean energy investments we're making through the Recovery Act. In California, 3,000 people will be employed to build a new solar plant that in turn will create 1,000 permanent jobs. In Michigan, investment in wind turbines and wind technology is expected to create over 2,600 jobs. In Florida, three new solar projects are expected to employ 1,400 people. The list goes on and on, but the point is this. This legislation will finally make clean energy the profitable kind of energy. That will lead to the creation of new businesses and entire new industries. And that will lead to American jobs that pay well and can't be outsourced. Now, of course, to understand what the mealy-mouthed rhetoric of the prostitute-in-chief really is obscuring, one has to turn to the alternative media. At the moment, if you turn to the corporate-controlled media for a debate about the merits and setbacks of this bill, all you'll find are the usual left-right phony politics, where, of course, the only possible dissent against this bill are that perhaps it will cause taxes to go up. Missing the entire point of the incredibly sweeping, tyrannical powers of the U.S. federal government to get into every corner of the citizens' daily lives through the enforcement arms of a green brigade which is in the process of being set up. To start to get an understanding of just how horrifying this legislation is, let's take a look at some alternative media coverage. Of course, there's this article from Zachary T. Baker via Infowars.com from June 27, 2009. New World Order rams through sham cap-and-trade bill. 
Quote, the U.S. House of Representatives are nothing more than prostitutes for the international banking cartel. Brothels in Washington, D.C. were packed Friday afternoon with eager congressmen who sold Americans out 219 to 212 in favor of the American Clean Energy and Security Act of 2009. Also dubbed Waxman Marquee, the bill will implement the infamous cap-and-trade system on greenhouse gas emissions, signaling the NWO's final moves towards total financial bondage. Under the guise of philanthropic-style environmentalism, the New World Order is blasting forward with draconian legislation every week, it seems. Using thuggish tactics such as switching bill numbers and phone numbers to D.C. representatives and, of course, good old-fashioned disinfo bombs got the job done. Cap-and-trade sets a limit on the amount of greenhouse gases that a factory, business, utility, or other energy producer is allowed to emit. The goal of the waxman Marquee bill is to cut CO2 emissions by 17% by 2020. Most energy producers and manufacturers will be severely affected by these caps, but the increased cost will be passed on to their consumers through higher prices. Companies will purchase permits that will allow them to exceed the cap. These permits will be issued by our gangster government and then be auctioned off to the same companies participating in the cap-and-trade system. The theory is to create a free market for carbon permits, where the price is set by those being forced to participate in the new system. Consumers will be affected the most by these new caps on energy. Douglas Elmendorf, the director of the Commission Budget Office, testified before the Committee on Finance in May. He says a cap-and-trade system would be devastating to the working poor. According to Elmendorf, the cost for an average American household would be $1,600 a year, with low-income households carrying a heavier burden because they spend more of their income on energy than higher-income households. Remaining scraps from revenue created by the auctioning off of carbon permits will go to the families with lower incomes, such as a whopping $161 per year tax credit for single persons and $359 for five-person families. Here's the rub. According to Elmendorf, such price increases would be essential to the success of a cap-and-trade program because they would be the most important mechanism through which businesses and households were encouraged to make investments and behavioral changes that reduced CO2. The federal government will have an annual allowance of almost a trillion dollars worth of grants, bribe money, to use as they seem fit. Much like the Mafia acting as a middleman between people and businesses, the EPA will create a list of companies who are trade-sensitive or rely on imports. With General Electric's smart grid technology in place, energy companies, along with their customers, will have no other choice but to convert to the communist-style system of rationing vital utilities. What smart grid visionaries foresee are home thermostats and appliances that adjust automatically depending on the cost of power. The availability of $4.5 billion in federal economic recovery money for smart grid technology gives incentives for companies to convert over to the new digitized grid. Is the average consumer willing to pay the upfront costs of a new system and then respond appropriately to price signals? Or will people view of utility's ability to reach inside a home to turn down a thermostat as Orwellian? Senator Lisa Murkowski, representative from Alaska, said at a recent hearing 
on the smart grid. End quote. Orwellian, indeed. In fact, this far surpasses anything that Orwell could have even envisioned. Evidently, Obama was not merely spouting hot air when he said that people weren't going to be allowed to have their air conditioners on as low as they want anymore. It's literally true. Of course, that's just one example of the myriad ways that this legislation will affect the average American on a daily basis. To begin looking at how the economy is being completely rebuilt from the ground up via this legislation, and of course to examine who is already positioned to profit from this revamp of the American economy, let's take a listen to a short extract from the hearings that were held during deliberation on this Clean Energy and Security Act of 2009. Lady from Tennessee, Ms. Blackburn. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to both of you for your patience today. Vice President Gore, you and I have had the opportunity to represent some of the same people from a truly wonderful state. And I, you talked a little bit about people have to have trust in what you're doing. And I think you know that this bill is going to fundamentally change the way America works. And it's going to affect families. We've all talked about how it affects individuals and what it's going to do to their budgets and and uh, what it's going to do to jobs in this country. And given the magnitude of those changes, I think it's really important that no suspicion or shadow fall on the foremost advocates of climate change legislation. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of clear the air about your motives and maybe set the record straight for some of your former constituents. And I've got an article from October 8th, New York Times Magazine about a firm called Kleiner Perkins, a capital firm called Kleiner Perkins. Are you aware of that company? <laughs> well, yes, I'm a partner in Kleiner Perkins. So you're a partner in Kleiner Perkins. Okay. Now, they have invested <laughs> about a billion dollars in 40 companies that are going to benefit from cap-and-trade legislation. So is the legislation that we are discussing here today, is that something that you are going to personally benefit from? I believe that the transition to a green economy is good for our economy and good for all of us. And I have invested in it, but every penny that I have made, I have put right into a nonprofit, the Alliance for Climate Protection, to spread awareness of why we have to take on this challenge. And Congresswoman, if you're, if you believe that the reason I have been working on this issue for 30 years is because of greed, you don't know me. No, Mr. Gore, you're quite right. Most people out there don't know you. So let's find out a little bit more about you. Well, let's go to greenhellblog.com for this story from April 24th, 2009. Gore lies to Congress about personal finances. Quote, When Tennessee Representative Marsha Blackburn confronted Al Gore with his profiteering from global warming legislation at today's House Energy and Environment Subcommittee hearing on the Waxman-Markey Climate Bill, Al Gore said that every penny he ever made from his business activities went into non-profit efforts. That is a flat-out lie, according to this March 6, 2008 Bloomberg report 
that indicates that Al Gore invested $35 million of his own money in various for-profit endeavors. End quote. But then how could anyone ever suspect that Al Gore is actually doing this to try to make money? Well, how about this article from CanadaFreePress.com, June 3rd, 2009. Al Gore invests millions to make billions in cap-and-trade software. Quote, Al Gore's venture capital firm has invested $6 million in a software company that stands to make billions of dollars from cap-and-trade regulation, further fueling controversy that Gore lied about his profiteering from cap-and-trade to Representative Marsha Blackburn and the House Energy and Environment Subcommittee during testimony in April. Hara Software sells software to help track greenhouse gas emissions. The market for such software is now about $2.5 billion in size, and is expected to grow by a factor of 10 to $25 billion if cap-and-trade legislation is enacted, according to Hera CEO Amit Chatterjee. Kleiner Perkins, a venture capital firm in which Al Gore is a partner, invested in Hara just last year. Chatterjee told Reuters that this company would not have existed if Al Gore had not bought off on the idea. Gore is also under fire for lying to Representative Steve Scalise at the same congressional hearing about his relationship with Goldman Sachs. Operating as a stealth tax, cap-and-trade will make the vast majority of Americans poorer and less free. But Al Gore, Kleiner Perkins, Amit Chatterjee, and Hara will be laughing all the way to the bank. End quote. Now, to flesh out Al Gore's past in some greater detail, I'll include some links in the documentation section to an August 29th, 2000 article from CorpWatch, Al Gore, the other oil candidate. And I'll throw in a link from newsbusters.org from August 7th, 2008, Al Gore, the oilman who hates oil. And I'll throw in a link to the Green Hell blog with more information about Al Gore lying to Representative Steve Scalise about his relationship with Goldman Sachs. But pointing out Al Gore's hypocrisy on these issues, with his major share in Occidental Petroleum, or the fact that his Tennessee estate uses 20 times more energy than the average Americans, or that he ultimately buys his carbon offsets, his carbon indulgences, as we know from episode 65 of this podcast, he buys them from himself, as he is the chairman and founding partner of Generation Investment Management, LLP, which, of course, sells carbon offsets. Again, pointing out these hypocrisies is a little bit like, to borrow from KRS-One's memorable analogy, complaining to the shift manager at a local McDonald's that the quality of McDonald's food is subpar. In order for any change to happen, you have to confront the owners of the whole scheme. So how do we go about looking for the owners of this cap-and-trade scheme, which is set to transform the American economy and make billions for some lucky few, and of course leave many others in abject poverty. Well, to begin peeking behind the curtains of this Clean Energy and Security Act scam, let's take a look at an excellent article that has recently appeared in Rolling Stone by Matt Tybee called The Great American Bubble Machine. This is an incredible article that shows how Goldman Sachs has engineered every major market manipulation since the Great Depression, and they're about to do it again with the global warming cap-and-trade carbon tax scheme. 
Again, this is an essential article, so I really do suggest that my listeners go to CorbettReport.com and find the link to this article from today's documentation list. But right now, I'd like to read a section of this article, Bubble Number 6, Global Warming. Quote, It's early June in Washington, D.C. Barack Obama, a popular young politician whose leading private campaign donor was an investment bank called Goldman Sachs, its employees paid some $981,000 to his campaign, sits in the White House. Having seamlessly navigated the political minefield of the bailout era, Goldman is once again back to its old business, scouting out loopholes in a new government-created market with the aid of a new set of alumni occupying key government jobs. As envisioned by Goldman, the fight to stop global warming will become a carbon market worth one trillion dollars a year. Gone are Hank Paulson and Neil Kashkari. In their place are Treasury Chief of Staff Mark Patterson and CFTC Chief Gary Gensler, both former Goldmanites. Gensler was the firm's co-head of finance. And instead of credit derivatives or oil futures or mortgage-backed CDOs, the new game in town, the next bubble, is in carbon credits a booming trillion-dollar market that barely even exists yet, but will if the Democratic Party that it gave $4,452,585 to in the last election manages to push into existence a groundbreaking new commodities bubble disguised as an environmental plan called cap-and-trade. The new carbon credit market is a virtual repeat of the commodities market casino that's been kind to Goldman, except it has one delicious new wrinkle. If the plan goes forward as expected, the rise in prices will be government-mandated. Goldman won't even have to rig the game. It will be rigged in advance. Here's how it works. If the bill passes, there will be limits for coal plants, utilities, natural gas distributors, and numerous other industries on the amount of carbon emissions, a.k.a. greenhouse gases, they can produce per year. If the companies go over their allotment, they will be able to buy allocations or credits from other companies that have managed to produce fewer emissions. President Obama conservatively estimates that about $646 billion worth of carbon credits will be auctioned in the first seven years. One of his top economic aides speculates that the real number might be twice or even three times that amount. The feature of this plan that has special appeal to speculators is that the cap on carbon will be continually lowered by the government, which means that carbon credits will become more and more scarce with each passing year, which means that this is a brand new commodities market where the main commodity to be traded is guaranteed to rise in price over time. The volume of this new market will be upwards of a trillion dollars annually. For comparison's sake, the annual combined revenues of electricity suppliers in the U.S. total $320 billion. Goldman wants this bill. The plan is, one, to get in on the ground floor of paradigm-shifting legislation, two, make sure that they're the profit-making slice of that paradigm, and three, make sure the slice is a big slice. Goldman started pushing hard for cap-and-trade long ago, but things really ramped up last year when the firm spent $3.5 million to lobby climate issues. 
One of their lobbyists at the time was none other than Patterson, now Treasury Chief of Staff. Back in 2005, when Hank Paulson was Chief of Goldman, he personally helped author the bank's environmental policy, a document that contains some surprising elements for a firm that in all other areas has been consistently opposed to any sort of government regulation. Paulson's report argued that voluntary action alone cannot solve the climate change problem. A few years later, the bank's carbon chief, Ken Newcomb, insisted that cap-and-trade alone won't be enough to fix the climate problem and called for further public investments in research and development, which is convenient considering that Goldman made early investments in wind power. It bought a subsidiary called Horizon Wind Energy. Renewable Diesel, it is an investor in a firm called Changing World Technologies, and Solar Power, it partnered with BP Solar, exactly the kind of deals that will prosper if the government forces energy producers to use cleaner energy. As Paulson said at the time, we're not making those investments to lose money. End quote. Again, that small section of the article does not do justice to the article as a whole, and once again, I would suggest that readers go and take a look at this article to understand how a financial juggernaut like Goldman Sachs can play such incredible havoc on our economy by helping to inflate bubbles, get in on the ground floor, sucker all the mom-and-pop investors into the market, and leave them holding the bag while they take the money and run. And as that section of that article indicated, and as of course the Obamasias told us earlier, Renewable energies are going to be the big winners when this new economy is brought into place. Oh, wonderful. A great new economy based on clean, wonderful, healthy, renewable energies. Well, maybe not. Again, the gap between the public perception of renewable energy technologies and the actual ability to implement them is huge. In order to begin getting an understanding of that, Let's turn to an interview that I conducted recently with a freelance reporter based in Hawaii, Albert Lanier. Albert Lanier has been writing freelance articles for the Honolulu Weekly. His reports have been looking into such firms as a Massachusetts-based firm called First Wind, which is currently being investigated by the New York Attorney General's office. I had the chance to talk to Albert Lanier recently about what his research has uncovered about the wind energy industry. Of course, the interview is available in its entirety from the homepage, CorbettReport.com, but right now let's take a listen to a short extract from that interview, where Albert Lanier breaks down the wind energy scam, and we discuss the ways that going green has become big business. Now, there's a book called Gusher of Lives, and in this book, it mentions, uh, that deals with energy independence. And it mentions that uh, there's a great deal of money that's being made by the wind sector. For example, I think the, the um, federal tax incentives alone in 2006 were $2.75 billion. Now, you're talking about subsidies and grants and other monies that are going to the wind sector. And another interesting point that I want to keep in mind about the wind business is that wind as a technology as an energy source, simply doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not reliable, it's intermittent, and it's inconsistent. 
And this is one of the real tragedies and one of the real reasons to be outraged over the wind industry. These are people that are making perhaps not as much money now because of the credit market problems that they're having. You know, um, First Wind itself is trying to scramble for financing for their projects because of the economic downturn that's being experienced. In fact, the Boston Globe, in a recent article, June 9th article, mentioned that First Wind, of course, that's based in Newton, Massachusetts, it stated that First Wind spent $120,000 to get access to U.S. lawmakers, this is a direct quote from this article, who were working on a proposal to revive the use of tax credits for renewable energy projects. So certainly there there is a great deal of money at stake here, and it is it has been shown to be a very unreliable source of power. So there is definitely more than meets the eye to this, and anyone who's examining it with an open mind would have to begin to question whether there is a type of climate industrial complex shaping up, like that which was recently referred to in a Wall Street Journal editorial. What do you think about this nexus of the environmental agenda and big business? Well, I call this the green agenda, and it's powered by the green movement. Now, you mentioned that Wall Street uh, Journal article. They called this an unholy alliance. I believe that's the article you're referring to. And basically, it's the consolidation of environmental groups. Not all of them. Probably the smaller ones are not involved because they're doing what environmentalists should, safeguarding and trying to protect the environment. But the larger environmental groups are consolidating or meeting up with, dovetailing with corporate America. And here are some examples. NBC Universal, basically known as NBC, the corporate name is NBC Universal, runs what is called the Green Week. They've had this last year and the year before. Now, this Green Week is on all their stations, including Bravo, USA, and NBC. This Green Week has different tips and different aspects of how to be environmentally friendly or how to be, as I call it, an ecotist. And you have people like Tina Fey basically telling you how you can be green. One of the most moronic aspects of this Green Week was something called Football Night in America, which is sort of the pre- and uh, mid-game show for Sunday Night Football. They basically cut out half the lights in the studio so they could be green. I mean, it looked like they were basically shutting down for the night. It was moronic. But this is what it takes to be green. Overt green propaganda. Overt propaganda by the broadcast networks like NBC Universal. And who owns NBC Universal? One of its owners, GE. GE is one of the largest producers of wind turbines in the United States. So let me ask you, James, do you think NBC Universal, via its client, its client company, GE, have an interest in wind technology or the green agenda? I think NBC Universal has a, an interest in a lot of things, and one of them is probably not telling the, uh, the full and open truth to the public. And uh, this case is like one of those cases, I think. And I think you're right that there is a concerted propaganda campaign in a number of the media to try to convince people of the, the importance of the green agenda in a broader sense. And I think you're right that does nexus in with uh, big, big business in so many different ways. Uh, what other aspects do you see to this? Obviously, it's not just wind power that's at stake here. Right. Well, I mean, when you look at the larger aspect of the green agenda, as I call it, and the green movement, this is what you want to keep in mind. I, I hate to use this as a soundbite, but 
Um, these green entities are not interested in being green. They're interested in making green. They're not interested in the green that's on their lawn. They're interested in putting green in their pocket. So it's a financial motive for corporate America, and it's probably a financial motive also for these environmental groups, which have to survive. I mean, they need funding to survive. But it's a way of also propagating their beliefs. And their beliefs are not in safeguarding or protecting the environment. They're in behavior modification and lifestyle transmogrification. That is, change your behaviors, change the way you live your life. Don't drive your car too much, cut out your lights, try to reduce energy. Some of that sounds good, but in essence, it's moving backwards, not forwards. Here's the shocking truth. And again, this is probably a reason why I'll never be invited on any of the mainstream TV radio shows, like even the comedy ones like Stephen Colbert or Jon Stewart's Daily Show. Not only does wind not affect, not only is wind not effective, but energy independence is futile, as Gusher of Lies brings out. And this is a point that I've felt myself for quite a while now. We cannot be independent of oil and coal. We need oil and coal. This may shock a lot of people. A lot of people may get angry at me, but we need oil and coal. Oil and coal are not going away. So-called fossil fuels are not going away. There is no truly reliable energy source that can replace oil. Wind cannot do it. Wind needs a backup energy source. Solar cannot do it. I like solar. I love solar, but solar can't do the job. It needs a backup energy source. I don't know about biofuels. I would think, from what I hear, biofuels are even greater scandal in some respects than wind. I don't know. It depends on your point of view. Biofuels probably can't do it. There is no energy source that can replace oil and coal at this moment. In the future, who knows? But, I, uh, but you know, we'll have to see. There is nothing that can replace oil and coal at this point. And yet, we are being force-fed this environmental propaganda, and the scaremongering. Take a look at ABC's 2100, which recently came out. I mean, shows like Alec, the Alex Jones Show have uh, run segments on this. I watched their trailer. You know, it's typical climate change fear-mongering stuff. And this is what constitutes the green movement, the green agenda, to scare you, to get you to follow Al Gore, to get you to accept cap-and-trade, and, and carbon taxes, and all of this rot. As Mr. Lanier quite correctly pointed out in that excerpt, there is an agenda being pushed by the corporate-controlled media that serves the best interests of their corporate masters. That is, of course, no surprise. The much more disturbing thing is that people are believing this green hysteria and are willing to be stampeded into anything even such draconian laws as the Clean Energy and Security Act of 2009 in order to save us from the ravages of this terrible man-made global warming. So then what is the answer to our current predicament? Of course, as always, one aspect of the answer to this problem is political action. And of course, political action still can be organized against the Clean Energy and Security Act to prevent it from passing through the Senate, or even to revoke the House approval of the plan. 
And certainly I would encourage my American listeners to get involved in helping to bring down this draconian legislation before it becomes law. But another important aspect of this is concentrating on the bigger picture. Obviously, this is a fight for people's hearts and minds, and unfortunately, the corporate-controlled media, with access to people in their living rooms every day of the week as they absorb the flickering screen, providing them with a 24-7 news feed, mostly with stories of Michael Jackson and other such stories of absolutely no significance to anyone in the world, interspersed with occasional propaganda for such things as man-made global warming, unfortunately, the corporate-controlled media holds a very strong sway over the general population. Of course, like any effective lie, the big lie of man-made global warming is effective because it contains some kernel of underlying truth. And the truth to the man-made global warming lie is that people do realize at some level that there are deep, potentially irrevocable problems shaping up with our environment. Now, of course, these are the real things that people are really doing to the environment that could potentially destroy the planet and all its inhabitants forever. Of course, not only the dumping of toxic pollutants into the lakes and rivers, not only the clear-cutting of old-growth forests, but things like, of course, genetic engineering, which is fundamentally changing the genetic code of life on this planet forever, in a vast, uncontained scientific experiment, which we can never undo. There is no putting the genie back in the bottle once GMOs have been released into the biosphere. Or, of course, there are environmental issues that affect human health, such as the idea of greening the vaccines, that is, taking the toxic mercury-based preservatives and other toxic chemicals out of the vaccines. An interesting idea being promoted by such people as Jenny McCarthy and Jim Carrey. And it's important for us to understand that these are real environmental issues that do deserve our time and support. And it's important to understand that it's also important to present these real environmental issues to people when we are explaining why we are against man-made global warming because we are being deflected from these issues to concentrate on issues of no significance. Why is that? It's because the structure of the system itself is threatened when we start standing up for the real environmental issues. If we stand up and tell the US military no when they want to dump thousands of liters of toxic nerve chemicals into the Delaware River, for example, perhaps that will threaten the system. If we stand up en masse and absolutely refuse GMOs and demand proper labeling for products, then companies like Monsanto will not be able to get away with their agenda. Again, these are the issues that truly threaten to break down the corporate-controlled system, and thus will never be discussed in the corporate-controlled media. The best way, of course, to counter these types of real environmental issues is to become involved in these types of issues and get involved politically and in terms of actions in your local area. Again, local action is key because, of course, the large environmental organizations are minions of the big business interests that they are ultimately serving. This is a vast issue, but one that I recently took up with Dan Hamburg. My listeners might remember Dan Hamburg from a previous episode of this podcast, 
and he was a former U.S. congressman in California's first district during the Bill Clinton era. He's currently executive director of a small environmental organization called Voice of the Environment, which can be found at voiceoftheenvironment.org. I recently had the chance to talk to Dan Hamburg about the importance of people joining small localized groups to try to affect change on the real environmental issues, free from corporate influence and control. We had a very lengthy and interesting conversation, and I would suggest that my listeners listen to this conversation in its entirety, and I would like to stress that Dan Hamburg and I perhaps do not agree on all of the environmental issues, and that I believe we do not see eye to eye on the man-made climate change issue. However, I would wholeheartedly recommend people check out Voice of the Environment, which I think is an excellent example of a small, localized environmental action group, which is concentrating on real environmental issues that people can affect at their local level, from greening the vaccines to putting the brakes on the vast GMO experiment. So let's take a listen to a short extract from that interview, where I talk to Mr. Hamburg about the issues that Voice of the Environment is working on, and why it's important to become involved in a small, local environmental organization. You know, we got involved in, for example, the, the issue of GMOs, the genetically modified organisms. Uh, we got involved in that because I reside in Mendocino County. Uh, Mendocino County was the first county in the United States to put an initiative on the ballot to outlaw genetically modified organisms. So um, I took a, uh, I just decided that I would devote my efforts and the efforts of Voice of the Environment for a period of time um, into trying to get that ordinance passed, hoping that that would become a model for, um, you know, for other cities and counties throughout the country. And we were able to do that. We were able to become the first. And I know there are some counties who have followed us, but <clears throat> it was a fascinating campaign because uh, Monsanto and the other companies who were involved in producing uh, GMOs uh, looked on this campaign as a, as a serious threat to their, you know, to their power to shape public opinion on this issue. And they spent about $750,000. And, you know, as I said, this is a county of only about 80,000 people. And um, so we had, a, we had a lot on our hands. I mean, we had the, you know, pretty much the whole industry uh, focused on stopping this initiative. And yet it passed with almost 60% of the vote. And it really showed, I think, that there are areas in the country, and I think, you know, Mendocino County, and I'd say they're looking at it a little bit, um, you know, a little bit a little larger area. The entire north coast of California is one of those areas where um, people are tremendously concerned about these issues of what's in their food and, and um, making sure that... Um, you know, that we don't allow companies like Monsanto and their brethren to take over the food production uh, uh, of, our, of our society. And 
So we decided to take on that issue, and we were successful, and several other counties followed in our footsteps. And, um, you know, it was something we could, we could do as a, as a small environmental organization without, you know, taking on, um, you know, really more than we could handle. Uh, you know, similarly, when we took on the immunization issue, when we took on the, the issue of, uh, of hazardous chemicals and fertilizers, and these were these were all issues that um, th there was there was a real vacuum. There were no other organizations who were who were taking on these problems, and so you know we decided this was something that we could make a contribution toward. Well, that's personally what's attracted me so much to Voice of the Environment is that it dwells on the issues that I think I think a lot of the other environmental groups don't touch on. And these are very important and very fundamental issues from toxins in the vaccines to GMOs to the threatening of old growth forests. Extremely important issues that really do uh, affect our, our ecosystem, our environment and ourselves, our own personal health. Um, so that's something that I think is, is extremely important about this organization and why I encourage my listeners to check out Voice of the Environment at voiceoftheenvironment.org. But I guess uh, in, in closing then, if corporate interests are turning the green lifestyle and outlook into little more than a fashion trend that they can market like any other, how then do, do people who are genuinely concerned about these fundamental issues about the environment turn that movement back into something where people actually are able to affect and impact the environment and, and the, the area in which they're living? Well, I think that's one of the most encouraging thing that, things that's happening right now is that um, people are beginning to look at what can be done within their own little, little bioregion or even within their own watershed. Um, that's certainly happening here in Mendocino County with our, like our, our um, slow food movement um, and our movements to, um, you know, encourage people to put in their own gardens. And, you know, it's interesting, um, we had to, we were uh, expanding our little uh, flock of chickens recently. We had to wait six weeks to get chicks in at the local feed store because so many people in this area are now raising their own chickens. And the same thing with, with vegetable starts. And, you know, people are starting to understand, you know, and you can look at Michelle Obama's thing at the White House and say, well, you know, that's, that's kind of just a symbolic thing. But I really believe that people as individuals, as families, and as communities really need to look at how they're going to remain uh, alive and healthy in an environment in which so much of what we've accepted as our, as our structure, as society is falling apart. I mean, I, I don't think that the federal government uh, of the United States is, is any longer viable. And I think what we have is um, hundreds of thousands and, and soon millions of people saying, you know, we need to figure these things out for ourselves. We need to figure out how to feed ourselves. We need to figure out how to house ourselves, how to protect ourselves, because um, these systems uh, are not, are not uh, functioning well any longer. 
Dan Hamburg of voiceoftheenvironment.org. Certainly, I think that message from Dan Hamburg will resonate with my listeners. And it's true that the real environmental movement, based on the real environmental problems that we are facing as a species on this planet, does mesh in so many ways with the freedom, liberty, and truth movements. A point that I have stressed time and time and time again on this podcast is that it is time to return to a concept of self-sufficiency and to detach ourselves from all the forms of government and corporate control which we have been led to believe we need in our lives in order to control us and to help save the environment. Of course, the exact opposite is true. We don't need the government in our lives with the green brigades telling us what temperature we can set our air conditioner on any more than we need to adopt some corporate advertising executive's idea of what it is to be green. What we really need is to rediscover how to feed ourselves, how to clothe ourselves, how to live and act at the local level without the need for this corporate globalist superstructure, which is feeding on our substance as we speak, as the bankers complete their gutting of America and indeed the world. The answer, of course, as always, rests with you. If you want the answer, look in the mirror. There are millions of ways to get involved, so choose an issue that concerns you and get in action. Start a local group to get fluoride removed from the tap water. Start a vaccine risk awareness newsletter that you distribute to your friends and family and those in your area. Demand political action from your representative on getting genetically modified organisms kicked out of your country. Start a blog or website, write articles, tell others, do whatever you can. But start affecting real change and start showing others that you are serious about building up a different alternative structure to the one that is being erected around us. And I leave you here, as always, to continue the research for yourself. Get informed and get active. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me for this week's edition of the Corbett Report podcast and asking you to join me next week for episode 93, Digging Up Skulls and Bones. talked about the need to build a new foundation for economic growth so that we don't return to the endless cycle of bubble and bust that led us to this recession.
clean energy and the jobs it creates will be absolutely critical to this new foundation.